This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. It not only educates its students about today's communication industry, but it produces innovative leaders. For more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Laurel Wamsley, a reporter and former news and podcast producer for National Public Radio in Washington. Laurel also has written for Slate, the BBC, Utney Reader, and other publications. She gives us a behind-the-scenes look at NPR and the roles of producers. She also talks about why NPR is so popular with multiple age groups and describes NPR's commitment to podcasting. Laurel, you've done a lot journalistically over your career. You've uh, written for online publications. You've written for magazines. Uh, you, you've been at NPR. Talk about the difference in your approach at NPR than perhaps you've had with Slate or, or other things that you've written for, certainly the Utney Reader. Sure. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me, Tom. This is fun. <laughs> um, second of all, um, I think one of the nice things about working about working for NPR, whether it's reporting for the radio or for online, is is the sense of serving the public. And you know, I think traditionally in journalism, you know, any reputable journalistic source has a division between between the business and the editorial side. Um, but at NPR, you really don't feel the impact of of any sort of business side at all. The you know, we're here to to serve listeners and readers and just Americans and make sure they have a reputable, reliable source of news. And that gives us some interesting luxuries. I just think it gives us the chance to, um, we really put an emphasis on getting the story right and not necessarily first. So we are fast. We are, have gotten much faster since the first time I worked at NPR some eight, nine years ago. Um, but but we really, there's there's never anyone saying, well, we'll fact check it later. We've, we fact check it first. And, um, and that makes it a, a strenuous and and wonderful place to work. I notice on my email alerts that that I get from uh, news organizations, and and I get Washington Post first or uh, some other reputable news agency first, and rarely do I get NPR first. But I get NPR all maybe 15, 20 minutes, half hour later. Uh, but the story's solid. Is that what I you're talking right. about? That is what I'm talking about. And with especially with breaking news, we I mean, when that happens, I mean, there's a lot of news hounds here um, who are getting those same alerts. And, um, you know, and I know I think NPR is always, is always trying to get get the time sped up. But um, we, you know, for stuff like that, we really rely on having two sources and we don't we don't report stuff until we have until we 
are very until we feel really good that it's accurate. Um, no one want we don't want to have to retract stuff. You know, this is a time where people, um, you know, have some people have lost faith in news media, and um, fortunately, not everyone has. Um, and people, I think, people who trust NPR um, are fine with with waiting 15 minutes to know that that what they're getting is real and it's accurate. You're listed as a reporter and producer, and and I want to break those down for for people. First of all, define what a producer is because I'm not sure most people out there, they see the term and they go, whatever. (laughs) But but what is it? Sure. So a producer is a job that means – a whole bunch of different things depending on whether you work in film or TV or public radio or whatever. Um, and even at NPR, it can mean a lot of different things. It's, I'm sure producer is the most common job title here in the building at NPR in Washington. So um, I've worked as a producer in a number of different types of jobs at NPR. So in the basic sense, NPR's the jobs at NPR sort of follow the lines of either working for a desk or a show. So the shows are morning edition, all things considered, weekend edition, day to day. Um, so show producers who work on one of those shows, um, you know, work a variety of shifts. If you're at morning edition, that means, you know, a lot of the staff works overnight. Um, and the emphasis in the show producer's job is in booking guests often, booking guests and arranging studio logistics for interviews between one of the show's hosts and that guest, and then uh, running the recording studio um, while that interview is happening, and then editing that interview afterwards so that it fits to time. So if Scott Simon interviews a guest, um, that conversation with an author might last 20 minutes, even more. Um, But say that conversation may only have there may only be room for six and a half minutes of that conversation or less uh, in the final show. And so it's the producer's job to go through and listen to that recording and edit it down to time. And then they play that edited version for an editor and they go over and sort of, you know, cut out the last bits or make the final decisions about about how it should go. Does the host then, or the reporter have any input into that editing process? The show's host rarely will listen to it. Um, they, right after you record the interview, often the host may have may have some sort of notes for the producer and editor and say, oh, I really, you know, I don't think we need to keep that second question or make sure to keep in that third question, um, but I, th- I bet you can take out part of the middle, things like that. Um, but... Um, but show, ho- but the show's hosts usually don't hear the final version until until the show goes. So you're a producer. Are you a producer for a particular show or a producer for online content? Uh, what do you produce? So I'm currently not a producer. So my job title has changed. Um, so first, let me finish your previous question. So I'm currently sure. a reporter, which means I'm no longer working as a producer. Um, but the other half of the equation is desk producers. So NPR's desks 
are staffed primarily with its reporters and editors and then a producer or two. So those desks are um, the politics desk, the national desk, which is made up of reporters around the country, uh, the international desk, the science desk, the education desk, uh, probably a couple others. So on those, there aren't as many producers, but um, they are responsible for um, helping you know reporters get their get their stories to air. Um, and so last year I worked uh, for a while as a, as a producer on the national desk, and that meant a variety of things. So I spent um, a month in Baltimore with NPR's Jennifer Ludden when we were covering the um, trial of the officers involved in um, the killing of Freddie, Freddie Gray, Gray. Yeah. or the death of Freddie Gray. And then, um, you know, in the fall, I was working on the national desk and I was sent like, you know, that very same day to on a flight to Savannah, Georgia, to cover um, a hurricane to cover a hurricane that was hitting there. So in that case, um, the produce a producer has a few different things. So sometimes it's just like doing research, finding um Finding old speeches and pulling clips out of them, finding audio for obituaries that we're preparing, all kinds of stuff like that. But it can also mean being a field producer, which means going out in the field, you know, with with microphones and recording gear, um, planning reporting trips, figuring out where Don Gagne should go to interview people in North Carolina for his next story, um, making calls in advance to find out who's going to be interesting to talk to and, and what they might have to say. That sounds um, far more exciting than the <laughs> first it's, description. It's a, it's a pretty plum job. Uh, it's a it's a great job. Uh, I mean, I think I think most producers at NPR love the field producing part of it, and we all wish we got to go out more because it's we spend a lot of time in the building, and uh, it's really fun to get to go out and, and actually, you know, talk to Americans. Now, as a reporter, uh, you're covering what now? I've, so read, I, I've read your stuff, and it seems to be a real wide swath of, of information and things. Yes. Uh, yeah, it is a whole lot of things. So basically, I'm a breaking news digital reporter for NPR right now. So NPR has a number of blogs, um, which cover different, you know, there's a science one, there's one sort of about development, there's one, um, you know, politics has a whole bunch of their own uh digital stories. Um, But I work for something called the Two Way, uh, which is NPR's breaking news blog. So we operate in concert with with NPR's radio reporters, with NPR's newscast unit um, to sort of be the digital arm and, you know, the text arm of breaking news as it happens. So we cover pretty much everything except for um, sort of the most U.S. politics of stories, which covered by get covered by the Washington desk. Um, so, uh, I just finished my second story of the day. So uh, sometimes I can't even remember what I just did because everything <laughs> every day is so completely different. I don't even know what I'm going to be. Walk writing in about. the door in so, the morning and, and have no clue, right? That's exactly what it is. So, yeah, I um, yeah, this, I wrote a story this morning about um, these flash floods in Arizona that swept a whole family away. And then I just finished a story about um, a Jordanian military court um, finding a, a verdict and sentencing of 
um, a Jordanian soldier who was convicted of murdering three U.S. soldiers. So it's, you know, it's national news, it's international news. Sometimes it's really fun stuff. Sometimes it's absolutely terrible stuff. So um, it's kind of whatever, whatever the breaking news of the day is. In that job, though, in your capacity as a uh, sort of an online reporter in doing text, uh, you get opportunities, though, to to do some radio as as well. I noticed your Amelia Earhart story that you did, uh, which was fascinating, by the way. Uh, you Thank not you. only wrote it up, but but you were interviewed about it. That's right. So there's um. There's a few different, you know, even though my job is primarily to be a digital reporter, um, that the nice thing is I also know who, how to do radio already, uh, which is convenient. So, right, with the Amelia Earhart story, that was, um, I, you know, came into work that day and there were, um, uh, and there were um, a lot of reports coming out about this new photograph that had supposedly been found that was supposedly America, uh, Amelia Earhart. Or if it was Amelia Earhart, well, they would prove that she had lived much longer um, and not crashed in the Pacific. Anyway, that's what the History Channel was saying. So I started working on that story, um, but then All Things Considered was also interested in um, talking to me about it. So it was kind of a crazy day because I was both um, writing up the story and doing research and making phone calls um, and interviewing um, interviewing folks for that story. But then at the same time, I was preparing to be myself interviewed um, for by Robert Siegel for All Things Considered that day. Um, so it was it was kind of cool to get to um, get to tell the story two different ways and for two different audiences because I, a lot of the people who listen to NPR don't necessarily read NPR.org and a lot of people uh, who rely on NPR.org for their news don't necessarily even own a radio. That that's amazing that those two audiences don't overlap. I've heard that many times before. Uh, they overlap somewhat, but there really are two separate audiences. Yeah, it is interesting. So sometimes Morning Edition will do a story on something, and then a couple days later, there's another development in that story. And we're like, well, you know, I'll, just because Morning Edition did something on it two days ago doesn't mean anyone who follows news on our website has, has heard that story yet or has read that yet. And so now that there's more news on it, like, let's do it. And, and now we can use images and um, we can tell it differently for the web. I'm taking it from what you're saying, Laurel, that, that you are assigned stories by by someone, an editor or someone. Uh, do you ever have the opportunity to do enterprise stories or are you too busy just doing what you're assigned? <laughs> um, not all of my stories are assigned to me. I would say um, – I would say maybe it's half and half. It's a it's a collaborative process with the editor. So sometimes, um, you know, I I work a variety of shifts, and so uh, for the most part lately, I've been working this eight a.m. to four p.m. shift. Um, and there's usually and that's um, there's usually news that has happened at that time that right. needs writing up. Or if something happened overnight, um, there's kind of a skeleton crew here. So someone will have written kind of the early early version of that story, um, but then there's more information by the time I'm arriving at the office. So, um, you know, so I'll, I'll, I'll do an update to the earlier post. I can add photos. I can add more quotes. I can add more reporting than what was available overnight. Um, so those are often stories that are assigned to me, just whatever's breaking. Um, but then as, as 
more of us um, are available um, and as sort of the the morning's news is covered, um, then I get to, you know, pitch my own stories and, you know, find find things happening, read the news wires, um, you know, take a look at other at other sources and find out some stories that that I might like to write myself. Um, I would say that most in this current job, things are pretty quick turnaround. So, um, you know, I rarely leave things unfinished and go to bed each night. I pretty much, you know, show up at work not knowing what I'm going to do, write two or three stories, finish them and go home and and start the next day. So I can be a little bit enterprising, um, but it has to be very quickly enterprising. You've done a lot of different things at at NPR. You were there once before. How is your job different now than it was earlier? So I started, um, I showed up at NPR about six months after graduating from college uh, as an intern on Weekend Edition Saturday with Scott Simon. Um, So I was an intern then, and um, it's a little bit different now, um, but back then, um, you couldn't do too too much of much substance, um, just because uh, uh, we're a union shop here, and so interns weren't part of the union, and and we were unpaid at the time, and so you weren't allowed to do too much that actually actually right. got on the radio. So you know, getting coffee, research, opening mail, that kind of things, uh, practicing for the for the big time. Um, and then I stayed on after my internship and worked as a producer on a few different shows, The Weekend, All Things Considered, and Morning Edition, and Newscast. Um, and then in 2008, I got a job on the elections desk for the 2008 election, which was um, just super fun. Um, it was a it was a great election, and I was mostly doing a lot of research and um, producing things here in the building. But I also got to do some cool stuff. Like I got to go to both of the political conventions. I got to be a pool reporter and go to the Oval Office and Camp David. Um, I got to travel with Don Gagne to cover some union meetings in Philadelphia. So it was just a it was just a great experience for getting to get a little bit closer to um, the reporting of NPR. So yeah, so I was here for two years. That was back in 2007, 2008. And then I left for a while. And then I came back about a year and a half ago. And uh, since then, NPR has moved to a new building. It has totally- You're uptown now compared to where you were before. (laughs) Uh, the building is certainly nicer. Yeah. Um, the the it's not quite as convenient in some ways right. as the location of the old office, but uh, but no complaints. It's a it's a great place to work. Am I mistaken, or did you when you weren't full time with NPR? Did you do some freelance work for them? Um, I did a little bit of freelance work. Um, I when I um, I moved. After my first stint at NPR, I moved to Austin, and I remained involved in radio there. I um, did some uh, field producing with John Burnett, who's the NPR's correspondent based in Austin. Um, And I did some freelance writing, and I... Um, with a friend, started something called Austin Listening Lounge, which was is sort of a, a sort of like potluck for audio producers. And we'd meet monthly in people's living rooms, and everyone would bring some sort of audio story that they were working on, and and a snack, and that was great. Um, but I I freelanced for a little while, but then I ended up um, working in uh, joining some startups and working uh, in tech for a while, and that's what I did in Austin and Chicago before returning to NPR. You've also done some work uh, at various places with with podcasting. Am, am I correct? 
back in the day, I uh, sometimes produced NPR's politics podcast in, in, at, in the old incarnation of it, which was great with Ken Rudin and Ron Elving. Um, and then now I did a little bit of uh, helping out producing the, the politics podcast here. And then I was recently I got to be a guest on the new Sam Sanders podcast, which I recommend everyone give a listen to. It's called It's Been a Minute. And um, What's so that I was about? The, it is... Think of it as sort of fresh air for I don't know I don't I don't want to typecast it but it's almost like a fresh air for for a younger more millennial audience. Um, it's hosted by Sam Sanders, who's a young dude about my age. He um, was the uh, he was the host of NPR's Politics podcast the last couple of years before moving over to the, his own, and it comes out twice a week, and, uh, Tuesdays and Fridays. And the Tuesday show is a deep dive where he interviews some sort of newsmaker or cultural figure and does a long interview. And then on Friday, it's a news roundup where he has like a roundtable. He's got a couple guests, um, usually other journalists, and. They talk through the news of the week, and he's just a great host and a great personality, and I think just a, a great example of of NPR um, trying out new audiences and new directions, and um, and like I don't know, it seems like there's a podcast for for almost anyone now because they, they've really um, taken a chance on on all kinds of new new sounds and concepts. It's pretty cool. We'll be back. After this message, the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University and its leadership and faculty strongly support diversity in all of its forms. The college has defined the concept of diversity as acceptance and respect for all and understands that each individual comes with a unique set of life experiences shaped along the dimensions of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, and gender identity, socioeconomic status, age, abilities, religious beliefs, political beliefs, and all other ideologies. At the Scripps College of Communication, diversity is about understanding one another and moving beyond simple tolerance to embracing and celebrating the rich dimensions contained within each individual. Diversity enables the exploration of varied life experiences in a safe, positive, and nurturing environment. To learn more and find out how you can become part of this diverse community, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I know this is heresy, but PBS is is old. Uh, I think the average viewer of PBS is about 63 years old. Uh, how has NPR stayed so young, or am I misconstruing that? I, I don't think you're misconstruing that. I think, um, you know, I— my friends may not be the most representative group in America, but, uh, you know, when I meet people of all ages and whenever I go a lot of places, people are big NPR fans. And it's not just it's not just my parents and their friends. It's it's my own friends. People think it's cool. Um, so I I think I mean, I think they've really made big progress in the last 10 years. And I think they've 
I don't know. I have this theory. I can't back this up with any audience data. But I think that one of the things they did that was really successful in reaching newer and younger audiences was um, putting a real emphasis and some money behind NPR music. So, I mean, I grew up listening to NPR and things like that, but I never... You know, beyond the occasional music interview, it wasn't a thing that you really thought a lot about in terms of its music programming. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. on WOUB, obviously, there would be um, local music shows and things like that. And then there were, you know, World Cafe and other music programming. But, But NPR, with its NPR music brand, like created this place, um, especially driven by its tiny desk concerts, that like made it really cool with um, with younger folks. So I feel like I've seen it with um, people my age that, you know, maybe starting in college or right after college, they liked NPR music on Facebook because they wanted to know when the next tiny desk show is up. And then Facebook starts recommending, hey, maybe you want to just like NPR and get get your news from that too. And I think and I think a lot of people did. And so I think NPR music was sort of a way of getting um, getting younger folks in the door and then sort of being there right alongside them, maybe as their interest and thirst for news grew. I've got a pet theory. Again, it's not substantiated by data either. But uh, I, I think the explosion of NPR and the explosion of podcasting uh, just goes hand in glove with the explosion of mobile media. And mm-hmm. uh, audio is the most mobile of all media, uh, I believe. And, and because you don't have to watch a screen, you don't have to read text, uh, it's the one thing that you can do while you're doing something else pretty easily. Absolutely. And so many people are so many people are multitasking. So many people are trying to be productive while they do one thing or another. So it's yeah, podcasts are so easy to listen to while you, you know, walk around your house, while you're cooking dinner, while you're, you know, doing that sort of life stuff. So um, what makes a good podcast? I know a lot of people Yeah. Um well, I think that depends on what you're into. Um I think people have vastly different things that they like to listen to. And so I think on one end of the spectrum are the sort of um, talking head podcasts where it's just, you know, two or three people around a table, around some microphones talking about politics or soccer or television or um, race or anything. I mean, these can, these are these really run the gamut, and there's a bunch of them out there. Sure. Um, so NPR has one like at the end. That's what the NPR Politics Podcast is like, and that's what um, yeah, Pop Culture Happy Hour. Um, that's also that format. Right. And when you've got smart people, that can be like just really fun, and you get, get to know these people and their opinions. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, I would say, are sort of the highly produced podcasts. So that's things like uh, This American and, Life and Serial and NPR's Invisibilia. All of those are things that uh, they require tons more um, time and editing. You know, it's not just a conversation that you edit down to time, which can be great, but but going out there and reporting and, and incorporating a lot of different voices and shaping it into this finished product. There are different audiences for, for all of that, and some people cross the uh, – across all genres and and take something that they're in the mood for a conversation, they're in the mood for uh, just sitting back and, and listening and following story, but but 
it's all driven by story, is it not? I think that's true. And I think whether it's the the narrative of American politics or whether it's the narrative of, you know, one person's um, path through life or struggling to, you know, figure something out or solve a problem. Um, I think good podcasts are ones that do sort of find that interesting thread and and follow it where it goes. I know in following your career, Laurel, over over the years, it, you've got certain interests. Bicycling is one, I know, but but you have, uh, uh, I guess, fascination would be a appropriate word uh, with urban life and urban sustainability and urban uh, self sufficiency. Uh, talk about that a bit. Sure. So, yes, I have I have become quite an urbanist over the last few years. Um, I think it kind of got started um, when I was living in Austin. I took a job when I was freelancing. I took a job with a census where I was going around and testing oh, no. like, <laughs> census-taking um, little handheld computers. And it was just like a fascinating experience of walking around these East Austin neighborhoods and looking at each house um, and just kind of thinking about thinking about the layout of neighborhoods. And it was just such a different sort of environment than I'd ever lived in before. Um, and it got me really curious about the architecture there and, and places that it's similar like or different than and and um, all of that stuff. And then it really sort of got into high gear when I moved to Chicago. Uh, I think Chicago is the sort of city that turns a lot of people into urbanists um, because you the architecture is just you know, it's just like a fascination for almost everyone who lives there. Just every I just went to Chicago again and you know, I went to a bookstore and it's, you know, you look at the Chicago book section and it says, oh, looking for Chicago architecture books? Those are over here because that's like a whole other bookshelf <laughs> is all the Chicago architecture books. And I was telling my friend, I was like, you know, every city isn't as obsessed as our, with architecture as Chicago is. Um, but I think the other thing about Chicago is that it's uh, it's both this great American city and it's a really troubled American city. And so uh, you just kind of get obsessed with uh, with Chicago politics and Chicago neighborhoods and um, the big urban planning decisions that that gave the city the form that it has taken for better and for worse. Um, and then while I was there, I had the good fortune to read this book that I recommend to everybody called Walkable City by Jeff Speck. And it's 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 kind of an urban planning book, but it's an urban planning book for the masses. And it really explains how um, how planning decisions really shape our everyday life and also sometimes the the crazy forces that shape those planning decisions. Like uh, he gives the example of, I think, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where um, these super wide streets were built uh, that are pretty pretty hefty for pedestrians to cross. Um, and they're so wide because the fire department demanded that they needed to be able to bring their widest trucks, their longest yeah. trucks, and that they all needed to be able to turn around. Um, and so when you're trying to build um, intersections to accommodate the longest fire truck uh, rather than uh, uh, individual cars, um, it just it can really change the scale pretty quickly. 
Um, so anyway, that's how I sort of got super into urbanism stuff. And and that continues. I think um, a lot of us are worried about, um, about the environment and about climate change. And um, a lot of the stuff I've read, including Walkable City, just makes a really strong case that living in cities, as, as more and more people do, is the most sustainable way to live, even if it doesn't always feel like it. Um, you know, it's when you're all packed together, it can feel like, oh, my gosh, you know, these <laughs> urban cities are a blight. Um, and it can be hard. You know, these summers are not always the most pleasant time to live in a city. Um, but just in terms of the efficiencies that are available in a city with um, public transit and bikeability and walkability um, and being able to walk to your farmer's market and um, and walk to the store as many times a week as you need to go and um, and people being willing to live in smaller spaces. It, it, it adds up. Okay. But journalistically, it seems like we uh, report urban life uh, fairly surfacely. We, we, we look at crime statistics, uh, and certainly these things are, are important. We look at police-community uh, relations. That's certainly important. But we don't look at, I think, what might be interesting and fascinating stories about normal life in an urban environment. W- would you agree with me? I don't. I don't know. I guess it depends what you read. I, <laughs> I, I read a lot of. I love. Uh, I love stories of of urban life, and so I, you know, I mean, I think. There, I think there's been a, a, a real uptick in coverage of sort of what what works in cities um, in the last few years, and so and okay. publications like um, City Lab, which used to be, which is a product of of the Atlantic, um, they do great coverage of of city stuff and like. Um, Emily Badger, who used to be at Wonk Blog, which is a Washington Post um, blog that looks at policy, has uh, done great reporting on city stuff. So, I mean, I think it's. I mean, I think it depends on on what your news sources are. Um, I think that I think it's definitely true that a lot of people get f- uh, fixated on on crime statistics and stuff like that. But um, I don't know. But it's also true that a lot of the cool ideas, cool restaurants, cool, um, you know. A lot of the stuff that gets me excited about sort of neighbors working together to do things, um, a lot of those things start in cities. How do you handle that passion when you're working as much as you're working? Um, that is hard. <laughs> and, I, and I even find it a little bit hard just living in Washington, D.C. Um, versus having lived in Chicago and Austin because those cities have such um, such a local pride and local mentality um, that uh, the I think um, those of us who sort of work in national media or for national politics and things like that, it's so easy to, when you live in D.C., to become obsessed with the national or international, depending on what your job is, um, that I think people sort of lose sight of the local. Um, but the local is is where a lot of the magic happens and where just you as a person, you know, not you as your job, but you as a person and as a neighbor um, and as a citizen can can get involved in things, um, and so it is hard to to juggle it. And sometimes I, sometimes I have to remind myself, no, remember how how obsessed you are with this stuff. You know, carve out time. Right. Um, so I think, you know, that's sort of one of my goals for my work here is to even as I'm working on these daily, you know, breaking news stories to con- 
to, you know, be pitching my editors um, longer, you know, maybe radio stories or longer digital stories about um, about the sort of urbanism stuff that I'm still into. So what's next for you? You've had a, a great career doing multiple things uh, at a very young age. What's next? Uh, that is a great question. <laughs> always trying to figure that out. Um, you know, I, I've only been in this job at NPR for a few months getting to do um, reporting for the two-way. And I just feel like I'm learning a ton and getting better and faster. And so I'm, I'm happy to be in, in this job for a while longer. Um, I th- hope that next would be to um, continue as a reporter, but uh, but get to follow a specific beat so I could develop all the contacts and, and become... Um, you know, a reliable expert on a specific field. I think that's the next step for me. You like radio? You like audio? Oh, I love radio. Uh, I think it's so fun. I mean, it's, you know, when so much else in life seems to require a lot of effort, like turning on the radio and just like having people explain things to you and and you can just let it wash over you. I think I think that's a real luxury. And um, to be involved in making that and at a Play in an institution that I I feel really proud of and have always admired. Um, I feel just very lucky to to get to make radio at NPR. That's a great place to end. (laughs) Laurel, thank you (laughs) so much for your time and your insight. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the great questions. It was fun to, fun to talk to you. Today, we've been talking with NPR reporter and former producer Laurel Wamsley. She has given us a behind-the-scenes look at the inner workings of NPR and how stories are developed for radio and your podcasts. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We also welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or you can review it through Apple Podcasts. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. Again, that's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.